Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Let's get you taken care of. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Aspirin ABC podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan. Today we are at the NASCAR R&D Center in Concord, North Carolina, second floor in one of the uh, executive offices here, and we're here to talk to a NASCAR executive, Managing Director for Competition and Innovation. Did I get that right? You did. Okay. John Probst is here, and also a guy who uh, had a lot to do with the new optical scanning station inspection system. I uh, want to get to that, but first we just want to talk about your background. John, first, thanks for being here. No problem. Thanks for having me. Your racing career started at Ford? Yeah, actually, technically probably started in college mm-hmm. um, with a program called Formula SAE, where a lot of engineers actually get their start in a lot of the engineering side of racing, but formally with Ford Motor Company after college. Penn State. Penn State and in mechanical engineering. Mecha- when did you graduate? 1994. Okay, so that was right <laughs> before. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I date you immediately yeah, uh, and totally out you on your age, but... Uh, when I think about like the engineering explosion in NASCAR, I feel like it was right around the 2001-02-03 era. So you were kind of getting into racing a little bit ahead of that on the engineering side. Yeah, for sure. And I think that you know a lot of my engineering experience on the racing front early on was in Formula One through Ford with Jackie Stewart's Formula oh, right. One program. There did that for three and a half seasons, and then you know at that point, you know engineers were kind of showing up in NASCAR, but they were almost like tools in a way where. You know, like when you have an engineering group, you actually need a budget because they work on things, they design (laughs) things, they develop things. And I think early on engineering in NASCAR was more viewed as, oh, well, this guy has engineers and he's running well, so I'm going to go get me some of those engineers. And you set them in a room and at the time there wasn't necessarily budget for them. So it was kind of an evolution of like collecting things and it wasn't just enough to have the engineers. You had to have the tools for the engineers to use and then the budget for the engineers to use the tools to actually design and develop parts and yeah. simulations and stuff like that. So those early days for engineering in NASCAR, was it, it was sort of like the monkey see, monkey do approach in the garage where somebody says, oh, that team's doing well with engineers, let's go get some, but they didn't maybe have the infrastructure in place to optimize it. Yeah, I think that's a good way to characterize it. A lot of the early engineers, you know, I kind of overlapped with some of the ones that were here as we were coming out of the, you know, the Ford, you know, the, the Formula One program and the IndyCar champ car at the time in Fordland. Um, and into the NASCAR program, you kind of overlapped a little bit with some of the engineers that had been kind of the early pioneers in the series as far as the engineers go. And, you know, you talk to them a lot of times, and I'm sure there's, you know, you get feedback of a lot of frustration in the back in the day of, you know, well, I kind of had to make my own pull-down rig or I had to, right. you know, you didn't have coordinate measuring machines at the time, so tape measures and stuff like that. So they were doing the best they could with the tools they had at the time. Um, but certainly as more engineers came in and, you know, more money, you know, which is sometimes a bad thing, you know, in the sport. <laughs> yeah. But get spent on it, you know, the more sophisticated things become until you look at today, 
where they go from tape measures and, and, and rulers, if you will, to now like some of the simulators and advanced like track scanning and things like that going on with multi-body dynamics for the sim that are running like near real time at this point. So it's come a long way in a short period of time. So you've been like on the NASCAR side for about two decades? Uh, oof, never actually added it up, but uh, <laughs> it, it's accumulating quickly. Probably not quite that. I'm probably closer to about 15 years now at this point. Could you have imagined at the outset that it would get to a point where simulations and everything like that have almost virtually re replaced things like, you know, like the, the seven post shakers that were such a big deal 10 years ago. It seems like all of that now is just being done through computers, which, you know, engineering programs and software, right? I, I think at the time, you know, the nerd in you says, yeah, I could see it getting to that. But then the practical side of you says, oh my gosh, these, you know, cars, you know, like a NASCAR is actually a lot more hard to simulate than an IndyCar. You know, we have a lot of asymmetries in the cars on the NASCAR front. They're built to turn left primarily. So, like, there's a lot of things in modeling, like a stock car that's actually more complicated than IndyCars with, you know, we run on sometimes bump rubbers and things like that, which are very nonlinear. And while IndyCar has the same things, they are, in general, a lot more linear and easier to model than stock cars. So, in a lot of ways, there's, there's similarities, but differences even between NASCAR and Formula One, let's say, like, a lot of the tool sets used in Formula One now are the same tool sets used in NASCAR at this point. It's just different scales where, you know, it's still a lot of money in on the NASCAR front, but it could be 10 times that and 10 times the people on the Formula One side. Because at the end of the day, it's it's still the same optimization problem, right? We we all have limited budgets or depend, you know, like Formula One, they're still limited. They don't have unlimited budgets. So, you know, it's you take the resources you have and you try and go as fast as you can around either a road course, street circuit, or an oval in our case, predominantly. So it's the same optimization problem. It's just you have different constraints. So when you entered racing as a full-time professional career, that was mid to late 90s, and you said that was with Fords. That was the Jaguar program then? Uh, it started as Jackie Stewart. It's one of the one team that did okay. that for three seasons, and then Jaguar took it over. Um, at that point then, I kind of transitioned, transitioned out of that and into the Champ Car program, did that for a couple seasons, and then uh, Toyota and Honda pulled out, and it became powered by Ford. So at that point, we transitioned into a like a stock car role did a lot of vehicle dynamics and electronic support for Roush at the time. Fenway wasn't part of it at, at that point. And, you know, those are the years when Matt and Kurt Busch won their championships and stuff. So it was a good time to be involved on the Ford side. Right. And then, you know, when Toyota came into the series, I had an opportunity to go work with the Red Bull team and was pretty excited to take advantage of that and relocated from Michigan down here to North Carolina at that point. Yeah, and then uh, after that, Ganassi as well. I want to get to that because you had a chance to pretty much work with all three manufacturers, which sure you pre sure prepared you well for your current role. But uh, you know, g going back to, to how you got into racing, John, is there a short track story in your background? Is it uh, is there something that got you into like wanting to go to school and take engineering and apply it? to this endeavor actually you know i was thinking i was figuring that question might come out and i was sitting here trying to think of you know what is kind of my earliest racing memory and you know there's there's probably two i'd say that you know i can remember as a kid for whatever reason watching i think it was like in the 80s mclaren's dominate formula one and just really liked formula one at the time and kind of always having a, a tinker engineering mindset actually grew up mostly probably preferring open wheel racing um, formula one indy cars at the time they were all very popular so was nascar at the time um and then you know like as a kid you know my dad would take us me and my brother to pocono a lot to watch the nascar races over time 
you just start gravitating towards kind of the stories of the time and, and obviously NASCAR's become kind of the the juggernaut in the United States at least for racing and, and kind of grew up being an Alan Kowicki fan you know just felt like there's a lot of similarities there you know he was left-handed I was left-handed he was born in December I was born in December he was an engineer I was an engineer <laughs> so like it kind of all lined up and and in, in, in the year I really started paying attention to him he did well and so after that he won the championship and you know unfortunately uh, he's not with us anymore, and there's part of me that wishes he was because it, it'd be like a guy, like if you say, who could you meet? Like that would be the guy I'd like to meet. Yeah. Never did, got to meet him, unfortunately. Did you go into engineering? And co- because at the time, it, you know, 1994, engineering wasn't really a pathway to NASCAR. At, at that time, was it was it an influence of Alan Kowicki that made you think, hey, there's an engineer who's doing well in racing, and maybe I can do that? Yeah, well. and I, actually, when I was in engineering school, you know, in the 90s, kind of was my goal to do open wheel racing even though the Kowicki side of it was an interest of mine you know like yeah. my, my heart at that point in my life was in trying to get to Formula One in one way or another hmm. uh, or IndyCar certainly or Champ Cars you know like one of the things on the bucket list you know would be Daytona 5 or uh, the Indianapolis 500 and you know just the way your career works out you don't always get to pick um, you know where you're going to be at what time and timing is a big part of things in life and you know what what's your level of preparedness for the opportunities that come up when they come up and you know so i was fortunate enough to to get to ford uh ford had the program with jackie stewart so it was fun to be involved with that from the ground up we were i can remember early days of that you know we were the group i was with was mainly responsible for the ecus and all of the chassis control systems on the car so we were doing everything from differential controls gearbox controls clutch controls drive-by-wire the braking systems and things like that and uh, just the challenge of being involved with that from the ground floor of not necessarily being guaranteed success of the car even running the first time we took it to the to the track and it was very stressful actually there's quite a few nights of really very little to no sleep but I think in a lot of ways it prepares you Mm -hmm. um, for what was to come you know like getting that work ethic and just really not paying attention to time and it's not a job it's a lifestyle at that point and I, th- I think those are like kind of the formational years when you're fresh out of school and you're you're you know I was trained as I have a degree in physics as well so you're you're kind of very theoretical on the physics side mechanical you're kind of hands-on you know they they joke around with you a lot to tell you're a gearhead but then you come to Ford and your first chance to get involved with Formula One is with control system well <laughs> right it's not exactly what you're trained for. You you do get that opportunity in a lot of the engineering schools to get your hands on, you know, like controllers and PID controllers at the time and even some state space stuff. But until you actually get out in the world and do it with your, you know, your hands on the stuff, like you never really know. And, you know, when you're young like that and you're around a bunch of guys that just eat it and live it and breathe it, and then you're able to kind of be trained, so to speak, early on in your career, I think it sets you up down the road for you know more success just because your work ethic you'll outwork a lot of people so did you live in europe or did you go to races around the world or you based Uh, somewhere else or um i was based out of detroit or really dearborn right but we spent most of our time with the test teams because a lot of the race team stuff over there there really is no time to develop new control algorithms or um, new methodologies for doing things when you're at the race on a given week. And it's kind of like what we do here in NASCAR where, it, you know, if you're a team, and, and maybe 
now there's a little bit more appetite for it than there was five years ago, let's say, because the simulation and all that's so much better now. But very seldom would you go to the racetrack on an important race weekend and, and try and sort something completely new that hasn't been tested. In Formula One, at that point, there was really no limits on testing. So you could test whenever you wanted. We, we spent all our time doing that. So away from the glamour of the limelight, I guess, <laughs> and, you know, doing I remember my very first test with the, with the uh, Stewart team was in Barcelona. And it was two four-day tests separated by two days. So it was 10 days of initiation into their world. And they're 12, 15-hour days of pretty, at times, hard work. Other times, you'd be a bit bored because there, when they work on the car, it's a lot more segmented. Like, they split the car, and then certain groups can go in and do their thing. It's not like you can work on the car uh, at any time. It's got to be in the state ready for your group to work on it. But... Um, you know, so our two days off, I'm thinking I'm the new guy. I'm going to get to see Barcelona and all that. Well, again, back to the guys kind of training you, you know, they're like, well, we're going in. I'm like, what do you mean we're going in? Yeah, we're going to go in and work. I'm like, okay. I mean, you're away <laughs> from home. You don't care. Yeah. But you're also young. You want to see the world. And we spent our two days <laughs> back at the racetrack working on stuff for the next set of four days that we we're going to test. So spent 10 days in Barcelona and really saw none of it. None of the city. None, none of the, one the, the track, greatest yeah. cities in the world. I know. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe you can get back someday. Uh, is it as rewarding, though, to do that for somebody who's into the engineering side and into racing? Can you get the same fulfillment out of just spending 10 days at a, at a test track like that? I think so. And, yeah. and I think that, you know, not only are you kind of becoming your lifestyle, you are still a, I don't want to say a fan, but your main goal is to just make sure you're supporting those guys that actually are there racing the, the cars, you know, on the weekends when we're not there necessarily, but to make sure that you kind of take personal pride that, you know, you go in and they don't have problems that weekend. The new stuff you guys develop gives them no issues. The calibrations you gave them work mm -hmm. and they get out, they don't miss laps. They don't miss practice time. That was kind of our own way of, you know, taking pride in what we were doing. And it felt like a, it was a pretty rewarding program back in those days. Like, managed to win a race in formula one so that was uh good times which and, which one was that uh Nürburgring with johnny herbert okay so right. it's uh it's pretty good times yeah and, and, and occasionally you know like it wasn't necessarily one of the higher budget teams out there but you know it it was good because we occasionally have glimpses of having speed and we qualify well and, and race well but yeah. it doesn't feel like you see that as much in formula one anymore maybe two three teams at most really could go up there and compete to win the rest are kind of there to collect points. What was uh, maybe the coolest project that you worked on during your time in Formula One? Is there like one thing in particular that you could point to and say, you know, you're talking about real world testing and validation you're doing and ensuring that when they went on the track, it, that the stuff worked. Is there like one thing you can point to and say there's something that, that worked or delivered performance or, you know, got Johnny Herbert that win? Yeah, I, th I think that uh, it's really nerdy, but uh, <laughs> probably it's probably even to this day one of the more other than maybe the the OSS, you know, we'll talk about in a bit. Yeah. Probably one of the more complicated projects I've done is uh, again, and it's totally nerdy, but, but it was uh, it's called a model reference adaptive controller for the throttle controls. The main premise behind it was that, like in the day, you you'd tune the controller with just fixed gains so that it would run a certain way, so the throttle would respond to the pedal in a certain manner. As and like through the course of the race, as the oil got hotter and the viscosity of the oil would change, like the performance of the throttle would change mm -hmm. due to temperature and like I was saying, viscosity of the oil. And it would drive the drivers nuts. So we actually were able to figure out a way to make the control system respond as if it was uh, an 
an optimized second order system independent of what the oil and the like the, the temperature and viscosity in particular were so basically it would change all the gains which is kind of the, in the day nowadays people probably laugh they're like oh that's nothing we do that now <laughs> no problem but right like in the day like the processors of the time that's actually pretty hard to do and get it simplified to where it would actually run on the computers of the mid to late 90s kind of time era which is what we were using that's cool um, but kids nowadays probably laugh at that yeah they're like oh i do that with my computer at home you know but yeah in the day it was much harder than yeah. it is today you spent that time in formula one john then you came and worked in nascar you said with roush so while you're working at ford for i guess what about 12 years or, yeah, or 11.8 11.8 so? uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. years they, they track it spoken by like an engineer yeah yeah, yeah. okay yeah. does that mean no pension pension then from, oh, no. from dearborn okay. no we got the pension okay yeah. <laughs> good for you so you were on the manufacturer side that entire time almost 12 years but it sounds like you were used to working with teams enough that when you made the switch to I, I'm looking at your career and it looks like you know two kind of major transitions manufacturer to team and then team to sanctioning body but maybe that transition from manufacturer to team wasn't maybe it was more graduated than I'm, I'm thinking because it wasn't that much different because you were helping teams so much already it wasn't it wasn't I think from the standpoint of the types of projects that you know I was involved with they were very similar yeah I had worked very closely with the guys over there and I'm still and pretty good friends with a lot of the guys I worked with in that time that are still in the garage but I think that probably the biggest difference and right or wrong back to the lifestyle versus a job is like when you're on the OEM side, or at least in that day, I'm sure it's different now, but you know, you'd work hard. It was your lifestyle. But like when you went home at night, because you didn't necessarily have the fate of particular cars in your hands at that point, like you could kind of check out for a little bit. Like when you went home at night, you could turn it off mentally and then come back the next day and get back into it and pick it up and carry on. Like when you go to the team side, probably the biggest difference there, in my opinion, is that there is no turning it off. It's difficult to do when you're home because you're always still thinking about it. You do know that like when you're on the OEM side and the team's having a particular problem with a part, let's say that's got durability issues or, or something, and you're trying to help them, you do know that like if, if you're not handling it 24-7, someone on that team is living it, breathing it, right now 24-7 until it's fixed. But when you're on the team side and you're struggling or you're facing those problems, there, there really is no turning it off. You live it, you breathe it, you're thinking about it, you wake up sometimes at night thinking about it. And sometimes when it's particularly bad, you can wake up wondering if that really was a dream or <laughs> like you can really get yourself confused, yeah. you know, because you think about it so much. Yeah, well, I'm sure, unfortunately, that, that first year, 2007 season, uh, what was then Team Red Bull, later Red Bull Racing, there were probably a lot of moments like that because that was a two-car team that qualified for pretty much half the races. Yeah, I we guess, missed, right? a, I think, 30. My friend Elton, who's also <laughs> yeah, here. Elton Sawyer, also a NASCAR executive, yeah, was part of that. <laughs> we uh, lived that together, and those were uh, character-building years for sure. If you were making a list of the hard way to do something, we didn't leave too many boxes unchecked that year. <laughs> we had new OEM, new drivers, um, you know, new team. It wasn't an existing team. Like we built it from nothing, not making any excuses. I mean, we're not happy with that, how that went that year. And, uh, you know, from that standpoint, I don't, I don't think we're, we're proud of our results, but I think that, you know, over time we built a pretty, pretty good organization that by the end was winning races. And, you know, there's part of me that wishes that was still going. And I, I feel like, you know, that was on the right track. And, and a lot of the tool sets that we brought to NASCAR, mostly because of the link with the Formula One team 
still live to this day and now are kind of some of the the more ubiquitous tool sets if you will across the industry with respect to some of the simulation stuff we were doing at N the time no kidding wow it's now used by you know all the oems and most of the teams that i know of so like so that's like software that red bull racing was using that is still well iterations later yeah, still used. not yeah. software they use not like proprietary software that they had developed that we brought over but the the tool kit that they were okay. using was something that wasn't real popular in the u.s at the time in the u.s at that point Mat matlab was primarily the tool that most of the teams were using and this was just kind of a competitor to that was the goal john sort of to build a formula one structure in a nascar team because when i hear the stories about red bull that's kind of what i hear is that like this you know austria's idea was we, we are going to create like a formula one style approach to winning cup races and it's going to work because it works in f1 was that sort of the goal uh, it was never really stated to me like that the goal was to create the very defined process and how we did things, which is kind of a Formula One style thing. At no point did they say, oh, just copy the Formula One team. But we were, we were setting it up more for this is a process. It's not a case of the expectations were to unload first year out and just go win the championship. I think the expectations were fairly reasonable in that, you know, our mind frame and direction we got, you know, is make decisions on a kind of three to five year basis don't necessarily and again back to the sim right if if your goal is to go out and be on top of things from day one you don't go grab some simulation tool that's not actually used right now in the sport you just go grab something that works and you kind of go and that day we consciously made the, de the decision to select tools that while immediately weren't necessarily up to the speed of the current tool sets but that their, their ceiling, if you will, was well above the current tool sets. So when you do that, it takes a little bit of time to get them there. And a lot of times you're dealing with businesses that haven't necessarily worked on a NASCAR vehicle, which, you know, kind of back to my earlier point of a lot of the nonlinearities and asymmetries in, in stock cars, it's very common for people to underestimate the entire problem because right, right. Uh, they're stock cars. And, right. you know, to me, it's one of the, one of the things a lot of engineers, especially new ones that come into the sport and have kind of some of the traditional mindsets of one at a time type testing and a little bit of a good old boy network and right. the cars aren't real sophisticated. It's not uncommon to see guys come in and, you know, especially young engineers and think that they're going to change the world. They're going to do something radically different than the way it's been done for, you know, 40 years and it's going to be better. And the reality is just that the examples of that are very small and it's not a step change. It's a a slow progression to the cars of today and, like, and then, you know back to the team side it's a, and a lot of times you you know a couple of years go by and you you see the cars every day so you don't necessarily notice the changes in them but if you go back and look at one of your cars from three years ago right. you almost laugh at yourself because you're <laughs> like wow why would we do it like that but yeah then you realize that it's it's a journey more than a destination and everything you had been doing is kind of progressing towards less compliance, lighter, lower CG, all, you know, better grip, you know, better arrow, whatever it is. And you just say, well, if three years ago, I'd know what I know now, I would have just built it like this. Right. Well, well, yeah, you would, but you didn't know that back then. You've got to go through the, the right. process. Because it's so incremental. You, you can't just like go from A to D without hitting B and C in the middle. And if you're a new engineer coming in, there's like maybe a preconceived notion that, oh, it's it's a stock car. How technological can it be? How technical? And, you know, I think we're 
debunking those myths more regularly in NASCAR on a, on a consistent basis. But I guess there is probably still that, that perception that it's not as high-tech as like F1, even when in many ways it is, right? Yeah, in a lot of ways now, like I was saying earlier, I think you see a lot of the same technology, the different scales being mm-hmm. you know, used in NASCAR that you see in Formula One. At Red Bull, you had the tough first season 2007, but you certainly got acclimated after that. You guys turned things around. 2008 was decent. 2009, you make the playoffs with Brian Vickers. And then, unfortunately, 2011, you get another one with Casey Kane, but Red Bull elects to, to pull out after that season. Were you there all the way through? Yeah, when Red Bull was wrapping up, Obviously, at that point, you make a lot of life choices and try and figure out what you want to do. We all kind of joke about what we want to do when we grow up. (laughs) As I sit here now, having dated myself, you know, I'm probably not going to grow up at this point. But, you know, you kind of look out and and see what's on the horizon and what do you want to do. At that point in my career, I wanted to stay on the team side. I felt like a lot of the lessons we learned at, you know, the Red Bull side of it could, could be used. And, you know, like anything, you know, coming out of, you know, an OEM direct to a team. Are you 100% prepared for the team life? No. But once you live that for almost six years, you know, or you feel like, okay, I'm way better prepared now for what's next, you know, on the team front. So go in and do that. And that's where, you know, like Chip was kind enough to, you know, offer me a spot over there. And, and I did that for, you know, another five years. Um, so before I ended up over here at NASCAR. Did uh, Ganassi's IndyCar program, was that maybe part of the appeal that obviously they don't work under the same roof, but there might be some, some cross-pollination, as Roger Penske might say there? Yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. You know, and having spent, you know, after the Formula One stint, I didn't go directly into the, the stock car world. I had a, a few years stint on the champ car front. Right. Obviously, Chip's a big competitor over there, <laughs> right. very well respected. So, you know, the lure of being able to, you know, get to see that and, and, and actually – see what it's like to work you know on a nascar team i kind of got a good insight um on the roush side of things where it's more of a standalone type team uh, with a good oem relationship but then to go over and 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 work with a team that actually has an indycar team and i'd known a couple of the engineers over there from my days at ford i had a lot of respect for those guys and uh just really intriguing to to try it you know, with that sort of uh, an infrastructure around you. Right. What was it like, John, going from, so you start out at Ford, then you have the, the Toyota experience for several seasons at Red Bull, and then obviously Ganassi's Chevrolet. Was that the, the kind of diverse background you, you wanted to have, I guess, when you come into a job here like NASCAR? Yeah, I think that, you know, when you look at it, having now kind of not come full circle, but, you know, when you look at the OEM experience, obviously all the Ford guys I, I knew at the time very well because I worked there for you know, almost 12 years came through the, you know, six years with Toyota and, and them getting into the sport. So I knew all those guys really well. And then another, you know, like five years with Chip on the, the Chevy front, you kind of feel like, okay, from the OEM side, I'd been at an OEM. I know all the players at all the other three OEMs that are involved right now. Um, you know, when you look at, again, you get to the end of the, the, the time with Chip and that, you're like, okay, now what do I want to do? And it's like, do you want to keep working for a team? Well, I know how that's going to feel day one of a new job. I know how that's going to feel six months in. I know what I'm going to feel like, you know, five years in. So at that point, there's very few unknowns left anymore. And it's like, you know, the 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 appeal of NASCAR at the time, there's obviously a lot of guys over here already that have had team experience that I had worked with or had been in the garage and competed against. And, you know, there's more out of just intellectual interest to say, okay, you got the OEM, you got the team, and now you kind of got the sanctioning body there. So you got, I've 
had experience with all three OEMs and now kind of all three of the the major kind of like team OEM and, and now sanctioning body. Yeah. So some intellectual curiosity on your part about what this experience might be like. Uh, did Elton Sawyer recruit you in some part to be here? No, he didn't recruit me, but certainly <laughs> uh, I leaned on him pretty heavily yeah. when we were talking through, you know, kind of entertaining the the concept of coming over here and working. I, I leaned on him pretty hard to kind of shoot me straight and mm -hmm. let me know what I was getting into. Steve O'Donnell was telling us earlier this year, John, that he wanted NASCAR's R&D Center here in Concord, all, all the staff here, he wanted to get to a place where they would be able to attract engineering, top engineering talent here and be able to compete against the teams because obviously that's always a tough battle for them with you know what the teams can offer and I would presume in terms of like salary and, and benefits and all sorts of things. And I think Steve kind of pointed out that you know Scott Miller was a good example of when they hired him as a, a vice president of competition here, that that was a good example of they were able to bring somebody in. Uh, I would think you would be an example of that as well, and, and certainly Elton too. Is is there, do you feel like you guys are sort of maybe changing the culture here a little bit because you guys bring such institutional knowledge from the team side or in Elton's case, like the driver's side? I, I sure hope so. I, I, I think that, you know, and, you know, Jay Fabian's a guy that was with Waltrip the entire time they were together. Mm -hmm. He's over here now and, when you step back, you know, like, I, I don't think that from a NASCAR standpoint, we feel like we're ever going to have an engineering staff here that is going to rival the teams. Um, and not so much in intellectual horsepower, but in just sheer number of people. We're not having to do some of the things that those guys do. So I, d I don't think that from our standpoint, we need to match them engineer for engineer. And, and, and in a lot of ways, you know, like, it's not really us going to battle with them either. It's right. us having the kind of the mental horsepower on this front to engage their high level people at a, at a level at which we we make progress as a as an industry we're keen to get kind of the the best and the brightest in here like simplify it real easy if if you like your job you should enjoy your drive to work in the morning and if you don't enjoy your drive to work in the morning I guess if you're in traffic, I, I'm taking that out of the out of loop. <laughs> Maybe I'm yeah, like, not on 77. Yeah, right. Stay <laughs> off 77. But like, if you're coming to, if you're driving to work and you're like, gosh, I just, I don't feel like I want to get to work today. And yeah. And then once you get to work, you, the the mo the thing you look forward to the most to is lunch. And then when you get back from lunch, <laughs> the thing you look most forward to is going home. Like, you're probably not in a job you enjoy. And I think that you know different people are motivated by different things. And I, I can say that, you know, since I've come over here, like the one thing that's just like step change for me personally is just coming to work and actually enjoying the people I'm around. We work hard. We, we have fun at work as well. I think most of the people would say, you know, here as we, you know, get more and more of the team guys in here, we do have more camaraderie and, you know, we, we have fun picking on each other even in the office. And uh, like to me, there's a part of that that, you know, we've got this camaraderie. We've got a lot of mutual respect. The mental horsepower is at least high enough to get the job done that we need to get done. Mm -hmm. It actually, it's it's a pretty fun group. One more question about your career that I just, I have to ask you, because although this is my first sit-down interview with you, it's not the first time I've heard your name. The first time I heard John Probst was 2006 when you went to Red Bull and it came at the chagrin of... Ford executives. Neither of these two guys are around anymore, but Dan Davis was in charge of Ford and at the time Jim Austin in charge of Toyota. And your name got in the middle of, wow, these guys are really going at each other. What was it like being in the midst of that as engineer John Probst is getting talked about uh, yeah. <laughs> at yeah, a different that's a, level? That's a, I never really thought of it that way. I, I will say that as yeah, pretty much as still a young engineer, 
coming out of Ford, I, I think that I had a, enough self-realization to know that that really wasn't about John Probst. <laughs> it was more about the politics of what was going on. But I'd be lying if I said it wasn't pretty cool. <laughs> um, I appreciate y- that answer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I, I knew enough that, you know, and I'm very grateful, you know, to Dan. Dan was pretty instrumental in, in, in my career and in, in getting me through the Ford side of things. So nothing but... but good things to say about you know ford and 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 dan in particular back to timing and life and where you are and mm-hmm. kind of what you're prepared for in the moment you know there were times at ford where you know i had opportunities to go back to school to get engineering management type degrees but never really got overly motivated to do it because when i sat down and kind of analyzed my situation i said you're kind of doing what you want to do like you're going to go get this degree or that degree and you're going to come back and then what are you going to do? Oh yeah. What you're doing right now. So can't say I've always made the most intelligent choices with respect to that in my life, but I've kind of just always followed kind of what I wanted to do mm-hmm. and didn't get caught up in some boilerplate checklist that said, Oh, if you do this and do that and then do this, then you get, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of always did in the moment, tried to make the best decisions I could and then went where my passion took me. But yeah. You know, as a young guy coming down, certainly it's, I do remember that, and it is kind of cool. So your passion, of course, takes you here almost two years ago. I think July 2016 was when you started working at NASCAR. Uh, how long after that, John, was did the charge go out that optical scanning station, the inspection system that was implemented this season, was going to be, I assume, pretty much your baby, and, and how you know how did that process begin? Yeah. Uh, actually, when I came over here, one of the, the early projects I had was the whole data side of it like mm-hmm. getting to where the data coming off the cars at the time was getting uh, mined if you will by all the OEMs in one form or fashion and came over here primarily as a first project to get that all sorted out and then shortly thereafter you know the optical scanning station although it wasn't called that at the time it was called like next gen track technology or something very unspecific and you know, actually, when I got here, it was already started because I remember the first thing I did was watch a video that they had recorded of three different companies that were asked to come in and make presentations to not just NASCAR, but some key team officials as well mm-hmm. on what they would propose if we wanted to kind of combine the template and the LIS stations into one. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I did was I watched those videos and kind of form some opinions and but at that point it was actually pretty early in the process so um, it wasn't probably until about November December time frame of 2006 that I kind of saw yeah this is going to be my next project yeah yeah and so how do you get to the well I'll just let you lay it out there first just the, the particulars of the optical standing scanning station like how many HD projectors cameras you know what's the what's the top line explanation for how it works yeah, um, you know, before we even got to if it was going to be cameras or projectors, you know, there's there's a lot of technologies out there that are used to do similar things from LIDAR to, you know, some other photogrammetry type solutions that, that would work and could have worked. I think that, you know, for us, like, it's important to have something that's relatively simple, easy to maintain at the racetrack few moving parts moving parts tend to break especially moving parts that are required for the system to work are things that we just try to stay away from Um, and i remember one of the solutions had some ramp system that would raise the car up to like the height of a 
one fifty three foot trailers, and then you'd roll it in, and it would roll out the other end. Well, wow! If that ramp broke, you're done. <laughs> that like, seems like a large apparatus to take to a track every week. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so like there were a lot of things that went into it, and I think that you know even to the point where you know we selected you know Hawkeye Innovations out of the UK. They're a, a they're a company that we already had an existing relationship with uh, with respect to the pro system. So. Um, for those not familiar with the pro system, that's the camera technology that we use to monitor cars and pit crew personnel on pit road while the cars are on pit road, obviously. So, like, it kind of made sense, you know, like this is a company that utilizes cameras primarily at the time to track things. And, you know, they had a and the technology that we ended up like evolving a bit into what became the OSS was their tennis ball tracking technology. Mm hmm. So we kind of took that on a stadium level, condensed it into our kind of template rack size level, you know, 15 by 30 feet, uh, 10, 10, 10 and a half feet tall, and just kind of let some of their brainiacs go to work on it. And, you know, what started out as six projectors became eight projectors. I think we started out with 14 cameras, ended up with 17 cameras, and a lot of that's just, you know, as you get through and start developing it and use it on a car for the first time, you realize, well, with these projectors and lenses on them, they cover a certain size of the car. And eventually you run out of that to cover the entire car. So the only way to fix it is to put another projector on. Right. And how many different points on the car body does it measure? It's like hundreds of thousands? Well, it's, it's very, like, up to us. And I don't mean that in the sense of we say, oh, here comes this car. We're going to run more or less. No, mm -hmm. I would say like today, give or take 5,000 points, we collect about 125,000 points on every vehicle. Mm -hmm. We do have the ability if there's something in particular on a car that we feel we need to look at better. And we have not done that yet this season, but I've done it back here in the lab just to, to test it out we can do 1.2 million points pretty easily. Wow. Um, and the trade-off there is like, well, why not just do 1.2 million every time, be done with it? You know, like one of the things we fight is the cycle time of how long does it take to scan the car and how many points do we get? And there, the more points I want, the longer it takes. It's, it, it scales almost linearly. So if today it takes me about 25 seconds to do the body part, the scan part, and that's what it is, and then it's about another 25 seconds to get the actual report, then that's 50 seconds to get 125,000 points. If I want to get 10 times that, it's pretty much 10 times the time, which doesn't sound like much, but at five minutes a car, yeah. and you have 40 cars, cars, that's yeah. your more than three hours. And yeah. for us right now, this year, we've, we've been through the cup garage uh, our best this year is an hour and 35 minutes hmm. for one time through everybody. Where was that? Uh, I don't remember. Yeah. Um, Elton Sawyer keeps track of that. I get the <laughs> emails so every every inspection, how long it took to get through. And when I see a number smaller than the one I had before, I put that in my notes. <laughs> That's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. So it's less than a minute per car then, John. After And just to describe this for people, like there's this big black tent, which you described the dimensions. The car rolls in, the tent gets closed, and then it takes less than a minute for the scan to occur and the data to come out. Yeah, this, there's really two things that happen in there. Th as far as the scan goes, there's, well, back up just a little bit. There's eight projectors around the top of that st structure that you just described. Mm -hmm. Also, 
around the inside of that structure are 16 cameras. Um, some might be going, oh, you said 17, now you say 16. Really, the 17th camera is a camera that's on the floor that points straight up, and it, it's there only as a fail-safe in case, for whatever reason, we're not able to find the conical seats on the car. We can then have the user manually select where the conical seat is on the car, and then it'll it'll run from there. So that we haven't even knock on wood, haven't had to use that yet this year. So eight cameras, 16 projectors. We close the blinds, the the operator hits run. It'll look like a Star Wars scene or a discotheque, where the projectors will light up and they'll start shining a bunch of horizontal horizontal and vertical lines, basically creating a a grid on the surface of the car, mm -hmm. um, training the cameras where to actually look for dots. So not only do we, so after it gets done doing the horizontal and vertical dots it, or lines, it then projects dots. The dots fill what would be the grid created by the horizontal and vertical lines so that not only do we track dots, we're tracking dots by like an ID. So it's not just a case of, oh yeah, there's a dot, measure it. We know that that's dot number 100,005, you know, so, and then as well, if the cameras look and they say, whoa, there's two dots in that grid, there's not supposed to be two dots in that grid. Well, because we have 125,000 points, we just ignore it. So that's why I say plus or minus 5,000 or so. Right, right. And so uh, when it comes up on the screen, it's like green is good. Is that right? Like the, it's like this, I'm trying to describe it in layman's terms. I don't know if I can, but essentially it just looks like you get this like almost like 3D sort of graphical representation of the car body. And if it's green, that means things are good. If there's little red or yellow spots, that's where there's an area where you guys yeah. aren't as happy with. Yeah, I mean, you nailed it. So, yeah, we, we basically pull up the CAD for that particular car. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that CAD, we just put what we call a heat map. Mm -hmm. Almost like if you were looking at, I don't know, like a storm coming through your right. hot, through your right. area where they got all the different colors of like that signify like the intensity of the storm. We just have our intensity is the distance of that point from the gold, if you will, or the CAD of what it's supposed to be. Right. And if it's outside of where the CAD's supposed to be, it's red. And if it's inside or inboard of where the CAD's supposed to be, it's blue. And really for us, like green is good for sure. Um, red and blue are really the only bad. And what we do oh. is like when you see yellow or light orange or light blue, that's just us trying to give the teams an idea as to, hey, this stuff here is starting to get close so that if they're trying to fix something that's red, but there's something not too far away that's like light yellow, like just be careful pushing in the red because if you push in your light blue and it becomes dark blue, then you got a problem there. Right. So it's as much as trying to give them as much of a complete picture as to what the body looks like holistically as well as hey and you got to fix this right here right and I, I think it would be fair to say john when this thing rolled out at speed weeks uh, obviously i don't want to say that, like there was trepidation because there wasn't in this case I've, I've seen nascar make big changes before you know car tomorrow comes to mind and everybody's like oh my god this is gonna change everything so i don't think it was quite on that level but i think people certainly were interested in you know how is this gonna affect inspection how is it gonna work will will there be holdups and i think that it's fair to say there have been overwhelmingly positive reviews of the system and <laughs> maybe teams aren't happy w with the results sometimes of the system but it seems like they're happy with the system itself because it's been more consistent than what they were accustomed to in, in the past is that maybe a fair way to characterize it do you think yeah I, I think that's fair and I, I would agree that you know when we unloaded and 
set the thing up in Daytona, you know, I, I can say that while we're not necessarily competitors in the traditional sense on the NASCAR side, like we don't have a car, we don't go out and compete against these guys. Like the feeling you get when you are a competitor where you got, you kind of have butterflies, you're nervous. Like yeah. when that first car rolled up, I wasn't nervous that it was going to pass or fail. I'm just, you're more nervous. Like I just want this thing to work. Like we said it was going right. to work, you know? Sure. Um, and you know, we did all our homework and we, we, in as much as anything, the fact that the teams were involved so heavily in the development of this thing gave me a lot of confidence. But still, it's like, man, until you're up to bat first and you see that first pitch and you know that, okay, that's the way it looked like in practice, we're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, knock on wood, I was looking at the run log here. We've done 4,008 scans this year at the track in both Xfinity and Cup. And I can't say it's been absolutely flawless. I mean, it's it's technology out in the elements. So we get the, you know, the occasional connector broken on a, you know, HDMI connector broken or somebody bumps a projector or somebody bumps a camera or, you know, we've had instances where the software crashes. Like, there's just kind of normal things you have. Um, I'm sure if you do this podcast long enough, your audio will break or do something goofy on you at one point. Yeah, knock on wood. <laughs> knock on wood on that one. Right. It's happened. Um, and the, <laughs> the, the key for that, like, in my opinion, is not necessarily that you're going to have problems because you're going to have problems. And the key is how do you recover? And I think that, you know, this year, you know, when we've had issues, I feel like we've recovered very quickly. We've not had any major backups and inspection because of the rig having problems. Right. And when teams don't get through, they're not complaining, oh, it's the system. It's, oh, it's, you know, there's a disagreement on whether the car. Well, and and, and the thing, you know, the one kind of side sort of effect of this whole thing this year is, you know, when you're able to speed up, the pace of the inspections you know mm-hmm. it used to be man if you failed inspection the first time through there was like it was kind of iffy if you got through the second time and were able to get out for qualifying i think that you know not to bring up a, a you know a rough subject i guess on people missing qualifying but you know i think nowadays like you almost get three attempts right. before you get to right. that point and i think that what happens is some I'm not saying all may make the calculation that I am going to be more aggressive first time through because I definitely get a second time through. I've got the time to do it. Right. Not, right? But if you yeah. and your other buddies all have the same thing in mind and only a couple get through the first time, then it really slows down the second time. Um, and not everybody does that, but I, I, there's some that, that have made that calculation and, you know, you know, it is what it is at that point. And, you know, my, we watch them like we use a lot of, like data analytics tools to watch people coming through tech and what they're failing and what they're passing. And, you know, for us, there's nothing more stressful for me because in a lot of ways we kind of want everybody to get through tech. We do not want them to miss qualifying or be late for the race. I mean, and, and a lot of times they're selfish reasons, you know, like late for qualifying. We don't like that. That's not good for the show late for the race more selfish then because then the officials don't actually get to eat lunch (laughs) so i mean it it sounds horrible no but like if human costs yeah right and then they're going to go four hours without eating you know after they just didn't eat lunch so it's really more than that so like you know our guys don't want people struggling to get through tech it doesn't help us it doesn't help you know our industry as a whole yes just bad storyline doesn't help anybody i tell you from the media perspective we are on your side on that one um and the teams had a chance you didn't roll this out cold you had it as a redundant type of inspection process during the playoffs last year and 
were you just selecting random cars, or could any team test it out the, the final 10 races of 2017? Yeah, we actually had it at six. Oh, not, six. Okay. Yeah. And, all right. And we kind of strategically picked them that, you know, we didn't, because we didn't have all the logistics sorted out of carrying this thing, we didn't want to do, like, the, the Texas, Phoenix, Homestead, because that's just traveling mm-hmm. this thing across the country. So we, skipped, we yeah. skipped Phoenix. But it was purely by volunteer. Uh, we didn't force anybody to come through it. And I would say that, you know, our participation in it was really good when we first started, and it kind of dwindled after that. Um, and it wasn't because we were having issues necessarily, but, you know, like when we, we did our first test at Chicagoland, you know, at that point we did some testing and because we had the teams involved at that point, we decided to kind of change how we did it um, and go to conical seats on the bottom of the cars um, to track the body and the LA and the wheel alignment part of the inspection to tie them together. Um, you know, working with the teams at that point for some of the events after we implemented that, not all the cars had the conical seats on the bottom of the car. So while we would run cars for the people that showed up, we were kind of working with those teams that were helping us to do their cars that had the conical seats on them so that we could actually be developing what we knew was going to be what we unloaded with in Daytona. Gotcha, gotcha. And so there was, uh, and I think that sort of speaks to this this ownership that teams had in it, and that probably, I would think, helped the rollout process. And do I understand correctly, John, did they, did some teams actually help in, in I don't know, building parts or just help with the, the system itself and coming up with some ideas for it? Or? Yeah, we... Shortly after Chicago, actually had a, a kind of a ad hoc user group, mm-hmm. um, not really user group, but sort of a project group of, you know, guys from, you know, like Stuart Haas, uh, Roush had guys in it, uh, Gibbs, and, you know, RCR, and just kind of brainstormed it, you know. And the good part, you know, is like you got relationships with these guys, and we all know the games that we've played over the years, and it's kind of like, yeah. So it just had conical seats from the beginning. This would have stopped a lot of this or a lot of that. So, you know, I can say that those guys, as much as anything, you know, like when you're trying to change something at that level in the industry, now it's not a level that necessarily the fans and the stands are going to see, but, you know, as far as the, the, the technical people on the teams, like you're, that's pretty fundamental change to how we've done things. And that gets me a little apprehensive about making that kind of level of change and, you know, a lot of the support from those guys are actually what gave me the confidence to, you know, keep going in that direction and, you know, them kind of being forceful when they needed to be forceful and supportive when they needed to be supportive. Like, it's kind of what helped get it across the finish line yeah. to the final solution. A lot of buy-in there. Um, one question I do have, John, about it is I've noticed or I've heard, you know, several teams went out and essentially bought their own OSSs that they, they have at the, sh- the, the shop. Was that something NASCAR sort of anticipated would happen that – that I guess some of the bigger teams would, would have their own optical scanning stations. Because I, I know you guys have one here that teams can come and use, but what I've heard from some teams is that you almost have to, like, inspect the car throughout the build process that's almost better, I guess, in some instances to have your own. Is that That's fair. I think that, yes, we anticipated that teams would want to buy this. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and I think that that's a little bit of a change from history not so much that teams want to buy what NASCAR is using. That's been around forever. Right. Because. I mean, they have template grids. Exactly. Yeah. And, and the reason you get that is because you want to get everything you can get with that template grid mm-hmm. and block system that NASCAR uses. Mm-hmm. And, like, I think that while you're correct, a lot of teams purchase the rig, I think probably nine or ten of them at this point, 
have one, at least one. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's been widely um, purchased throughout the cup garage for sure. I think that the reasons for that are obviously, to state the obvious, they want the same tool that we use. And I think historically it would have ended there and they would have said, that's what I got. Why do you have it? Well, I only have it because NASCAR has it. I wouldn't use this any other reason. I think, and maybe you can chat with them. Don't let me put words in their (laughs) mouth. Yeah. But I, I think in this case, like it's a little different because teams have similar systems today in use at their, at their shop. Um, most of them are photogrammetry based and what happens is that those systems aren't always very portable. They don't always give you a result really quick. And I think that to take your example of teams that measure the, the body multiple times as it goes through the shop. Okay. That, that's a very reasonable thing to want to do if you're a race team, because your car is graded on where it ends in the build process and where it ends is painted, decaled and ready to go. So if you build your car perfect when it's just a steel body till you mud it up, paint it, clear coat it, decal it, whatever you do, it's not going to be the right dimensions anymore because that stuff all has thickness. Sure. Right. So it's very common for people to want to do that. And with technologies that exist today, that usually means taking the technology to the car kind of thing and then rotating the technology around the car while it sits there. You know, I think the nice thing about this is that, and I'm not a salesman for it, I'd get no commissions. (laughs) 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 But like the nice, and I put my team hat on here, the nice thing about it is that you roll your car in there and in 30 seconds, because it's done doing the scanning part, you can be rolling it out. So let's say it's even a minute. So that really doesn't mess up the cycle time of your build process. Whereas if you use some of the older technologies, it might take 40 minutes or 30 minutes to scan it and then another three hours to get the result. So like that, that can, like if you've got to wait that three hours to see if you can continue the build, that's half a day. Yeah. So I, I think that there's a lot of reasons they would decide to buy the technology. I think now because of the technology that it is, it's relatively simple just about anybody can use it. The results that it gives you are fairly quick and very accurate. That, And, you know, from a price standpoint, it's relatively cheaper compared to many of those solutions. Like, it's just kind of a more efficient system right. in general. Right. I guess it's sort of pick your poison in some ways in terms of, yeah. you know, the, the money you spend in racing and, and how efficient it can be. Any other big projects on your horizon beyond just ke- keeping track of, of how the OSS is doing every week? Wait, what's the next big thing for John Probst, I guess, at NASCAR? It's a good question. I think that you know, we've got a lot of projects in the pipeline. Some of them are public, some of them aren't. But I think, you know, one of the things we saw this year is we started sharing data across the team side. Obviously, that was a bit of a lightning rod earlier in the season, which I think as we all the facts got out, it kind of calmed down. Right. That you know, one of the things we see now is that there is a lot of things we can do from the fan engagement side of it with like cool things on the race cars. And, you know, we've been testing a lot of car connectivity stuff. And like right now, one of the biggest limits for us in bringing like cool things to the fans is just the size of the pipe, if you will, coming off the cars. It's relatively older technology. So the our ability to get data off the car is somewhat limited. And a matter of fact, like just the data we bring off the cars now with steering, brake, throttle, RPM, some of the GPS stuff is about all it can do. 
So, for instance, if our guys come up with really cool, you know, 360-degree cameras, um, we can't really do much with them because we can't get that much information off the car. So we've been partnering with some pretty big uh, tech companies to kind of sort through some solutions there. That, hmm. And I've, it's kind of neat because we get kind of some previews of it and stuff. But when you can sit there with your iPhone or whatever and literally be like you're sitting next to your driver and you just look <laughs> around anywhere you want inside right. the car, um, it's pretty cool. I, I'm not saying you'd watch the whole race like that. I, some people might. I, I like watching it for a couple laps. And yeah. I think like things like that for us, like just trying to do kind of things to engage the fans you know and they yeah. can do it in the stands you can do it in the supermarket wherever you are yeah um i think that'll that'll uh that'll help us get kind of the the next generation interested in what we're doing certainly if you were in the cockpit or felt as if you were that that would so yeah. uh we'll keep our eye on that that would, that would definitely be something to watch for in the future that'd be cool uh john thanks again for doing this really appreciate you uh, being here enjoy the conversation and uh Thanks for all the insight. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. The uh, NASCAR NBC podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify. Please leave a rating or review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us out. Uh, if you have any feedback, as always, you can send to me on Twitter. At Nate Ryan is my handle. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR NBC podcast. summer projects your way with Memorial Day savings from the Home Depot. With free delivery on over 2 million items, you can make the most of summer grilling and dig into gardening. Plus, get same-day delivery on thousands of products like power tools and storage to tackle any last-minute garage project. Summer your way with Memorial Day savings from the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com/activecash.